it was something that a huge, huge swath of the American population read. It was kind of like a, a grand hearth that people, you know, gathered around in a way. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershon, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. And together, we're professional media historians guiding you through our own drafts of history. Transcripts of the show are available online at journalism-history.org podcast. We've done a lot of research on Life magazine. A lot. A, a quick search of our journals turns up dozens of articles focused squarely on that magazine and its contents, its operations, and its impact on American culture and journalism. And we should. I'm not saying we shouldn't. It was a major force. The question raised by today's guest is why we haven't given that same amount of attention to life's rival, Look Magazine. It ran during the same period. It lived just about as long. It sometimes even held the circulation lead, reaching as many as 35 million Americans with each issue. But it's far less frequently referenced in our literature. And when it is, it's rarely the focus. With me today is Andrew L. Yarrow, a former New York Times reporter, book author, and historian. In this episode, he fills us in on just what this magazine was all about as we discuss his new book titled Look, How a Highly Influential Magazine Helped Define Mid-20th Century America. Andrew, welcome to the show. So you write in the book that Look Magazine slipped from the national memory, despite it being a really major force in American culture. And so in a minute, I want to get to the magazine and its contents. But first, how does that happen? Like, why, why isn't there more historical appreciation for this magazine? Yeah, that's a great question, Ken. Uh, Look, which published for 35 years um, by the late 1960s before it folded in uh, October of 1971, had a circulation of close to 8 million, which meant that about uh, 30 to 35 million people read each issue. So it was a major, major magazine that uh, outsold life. It was a huge, huge presence in American journalism and American culture, uh, particularly in the 50s and 60s. But it, it really did disappear from view and from memory after it folded. And I think part of the problem was that unlike Life magazine, which is uh, often and correctly seen as its uh, competitor, uh, the company that published Look, Coles Communication, uh, did not do anything to sustain the magazine or its memory. I mean, the company basically uh, went out of business, unlike uh, Time Life, which you know kept life alive, even though life folded less than a year after Look in 1972. And uh, as, as you know, I mean, it's hard to go into a supermarket or a drugstore these days and not see one of the uh, life uh, bookazines, um, you know, whether it's on Mick Jagger or Queen Elizabeth, these sort of knockoff publications, basically of photos from, from life. So, you know, unlike life, look was 
uh, did not have vehicles to keep it alive. And, you know, many of the, the forces that caused uh, Look and Life After It to fold sort of overwhelmed the memory of, of Look. Um, and, you know, those forces included things like television, things like specialized magazines, um, you know, whether Sports Illustrated or Psychology Today, which was actually uh, edited by, by a, a former Look staffer. I mean, they really took over in the 1970s. And, you know, people were, and photojournalism also did not, there, there wasn't really, there weren't really great vehicles uh, in print media for continuing photojournalism. So, um, I mean, to me, as, as an author and aficionado of Look, uh, it's very sad that, that Look disappeared from memory. And it hasn't been digitized, unlike many other publications, including Life. So it's very hard, you know, to really find Look. Um, I mean, you can only find hard copies in some major libraries, like the Library of Congress, where I did much of my research, um, mm -hmm. or, you know, old flea markets or things like eBay, that, um, flea markets that may have old issues. So so, so if, if someone were to come across one of these issues of this magazine, how, what, what exactly did they look like? What, what, generally speaking, was this magazine about? What, what was it that it aimed to do? Sure, sure. Well, look... Um, was a large format magazine, I believe, uh, gosh, was it 11 by 14 or 10 something by 14? It was a bi-weekly, so it published every other week, unlike Life, which published weekly. And it was a, a general interest magazine, so it tried to cover everything. Though being a bi-weekly, it did feature stories. It didn't try to do news stories like Life did, or like the news magazines, Time or Newsweek or U.S. News. So it did uh, long feature stories, often long feature stories. There were some short ones as well, but uh, that combined the use of photographs and, and text. And it, um, in many areas, did very pioneering journalism, particularly in its coverage of civil rights and racial uh, racial justice and racial tension issues, but also in in foreign policy, its coverage of the Cold War, uh, its coverage of social movements like the uh, women's movement, second wave feminism in the '60s and early '70s, uh, the youth movement, the anti-Vietnam uh, War movement. Uh, the counterculture, um, but it also did, uh, you know, soft and fluffy features about a lot of features on Hollywood stars. And, you know, it did profiles of politicians and it looked at, uh, it did sports stories. Uh, for example, Jim Bouton's Ball Four began as an article in Look. Uh, it serialized books like William Manchester's Death of a President was serialized in four issues at 80,000 words. And those issues were among the best-selling ones of, of uh, in Look's history. Uh, uh, Look claimed that about 70 million Americans 
uh, in a population of maybe 200 million read some of that series. So Look covered a little bit of everything and had wonderful photographers and many talented and in uh, some cases kind of quirky writers. And many of the writers and editors of Look, after it folded, went on uh, to other careers in journalism. Um, and Look also published uh, essays by prominent Americans, um, you know, ranging from uh, William F. Buckley Jr. to Ernest Hemingway to Eleanor Roosevelt to it published. Uh, essays by all of the Kennedys, by Martin Luther King, a piece that was published that was set for publication in April of 1968. And of course, King was assassinated in early April of 68. And that piece came out, uh, it hit the newsstands, uh, sadly, just after his assassination. So um, Look was really... um, I mean, a look at America and the world in the 1950s and 60s, and before that, too, in the the 40s and and into the very early 70s, and covered other popular culture, too, Uh, you know, rock musicians, uh, uh, you name it, really. Well, so you mentioned those early years. So I always like a publication that comes from a part of the country that I can recognize as someone living in Kansas. And and this story begins, if I'm not mistaken, in Iowa. So can you help us understand how how did this magazine get started? What was its early content like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, It was started uh, by a man named Gardner Coles. Uh, He went by Mike, so Mike Coles, who was, um, his father had owned or owned uh, the Des Moines Register, and Mike Coles had become, sort of inherited the Des Moines Register and became the publisher of the Register in his his 20s and in the uh, late 1920s. And uh, Mike Coles thought of Look initially as being a a spinoff from a Sunday supplement to the Des Moines Register And he was influenced by a couple of things. There really were not picture magazines or picture publications in America before Life and Look. And, you know, he consulted with Henry Luce, uh, you know, who was thinking of developing life at the same time in the mid-1930s. They initially didn't think that there would be, they would be competitive, though, of course, they became uh, big competitors. but. Uh, a lot of the, the impetus came from European magazines, German and French magazines, that had started to do kind of photojournalism, photo, photo magazines uh, in the, uh, after World War I in the 1920s. And uh, another interesting tidbit about the origins of Look, George Gallup had been a um, PhD student at the University of Iowa, and Mike Coles looked the publisher knew or discovered uh, Gallup, and actually uh, Gallup's early polling uh, kind of found, or early survey research found that, um, you know, stories told with pictures and text uh, could incredibly appeal to readers in a way that a lot of journalism wasn't doing. So Gallup became, uh, after look, uh, debuted in January of 1937, 
Uh, Gallup kind of remained uh, sort of on retainer with Look for many years, did some of his early earliest polling for Look uh, into the 1940s. But um, Look began in January of 37, and its beginning was perhaps not, it was a very rocky beginning. Uh, <laughs> the first issue had sort of a terrible problem. The back cover of the issue had uh, an image that uh, some readers discovered if one folded the picture. I mean, this may sound ridiculous. It uh, looked like a, a kind of pornographic image. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, there was a lot of uh, outrage and people thought, oh, this is a terrible magazine. It should fold. It should be, uh, should end. And, um, you know, many of the early issues had rather sensational and uh, kind of ridiculous covers, um, even though there was sometimes interesting content. Of course, this was in the run-up to World War II, so there were stories on Hitler and fascism. But the cover would have the covers would have these awful images of, you know, damsels in distress with, you know, like a a dragon or a monster or something, a really ridiculous things. And, um, but within a few <laughs> years, within, yeah, it's kind of crazy. Within a few years, Look cleaned up its act uh, and, you know, got uh, the first of a number of very good art directors and, you know, became the more, by about 1940, when it moved from Des Moines to New York City, uh, became a much more serious magazine. And that uh, development, you know, continued um, to the point by by the end of World War II, by the late 40s, uh, Look became the kind of recognizable magazine that, uh, you know, it, it was for the rest of its history. It would do, you know, no no more of the, the sort of silly... Um, kind of offensive covers. It did, you know, thoughtful stories. You know, it still might have and often did have, for better or worse, uh, you know, attractive actresses or other people, you know, on the uh, celebrities on the cover. But, you know, it would also do uh, powerful stories, as I, as I mentioned, on, you know, everything from uh, civil rights to birth control to you know, issues in American politics uh, to, um, you know, as wonderful, wonderful coverage of the Cold War. It was really the first major magazine in the, or major publication to get a writer and photographer into communist China in the mid-50s, um, for example. Um, it did some very powerful stories. It twice sent journalists along the whole length of the Iron Curtain uh, from Southern Europe up through uh, beyond the Arctic Circle in Finland. And, you know, showed, um, you know, the, really showed the tensions in the Cold War in a very personal sense. And that was something about Look too that differentiated it from life and from the news magazines. It tried to humanize many issues, whether they were foreign policy issues or issues of 
of racism or poverty in America, did many stories on, on poverty and economic problems in America, but would often do this by telling the story, uh, stories of a family or individuals and, uh, you know, what, what their lives were. Um, well, so you, you, you mentioned that in the book, right? Um, I think, I think the, the words, I can't remember if they were yours or someone else's, but you referred to look as being kind of a poor man's version of life. Was this, do you think this was an intentional differentiation from life? Were they doing this competitively? What, what led them to that, that style of coverage? Well, I mean, the poor man's version, I, I think I put in quotes because in many ways, Look was uh, a more thoughtful magazine than Life. And I know, you know, this is not, uh, not a widespread view, but Look, as one writer told me, and I interviewed some, many of the surviving writers um, and editors uh, and photographers for Look, and I'm actually working on a documentary film now, uh, about Look Magazine, interviewing many of these these writers and editors. As one told me, you know, Look's stories ranged from, you know, the pits of, the ba- of bad taste to the visionary. And, you know, it's, it's more powerful stories were really much more thoughtful than the kinds of pieces one found in, in Life or the news magazines. Um, Life of course, the Time Inc. publications were heavily edited, um, you know, a bright, and there was sort of one voice in, in life and in, in time and, and the news magazines. But then, whereas Look really gave its writers a lot of leeway, and one could, could hear a writer's voice, whether it was, um, you know, a, a figure like, a writer like Ernest Dunbar, who was one of the first African-American journalists on staff of a major U.S. publication in the the 1950s, you know, writing about racial injustice, or whether uh, it was George Leonard, one of uh, really the more visionary writers for Look, uh, writing about the new psychologies or psychological movements, uh, humanistic psychology, the human potential movement, and George Leonard, for example, kind of helped popularize uh, Esalen, the Big Sur retreat center that after Look folded, uh, Leonard went on to become a leader of Esalen. So, I mean, there was a lot, uh, a lot to the vo- in terms of the voices of Look journalists that, that really made it a more thoughtful magazine than life. So I would push back at... Uh, you know, the idea that it was a poor man's version of life. <laughs> sure. You know, one one idea that, that struck me as particularly important, and, and you return to it repeatedly in the book, is that uh, this idea of the post-war consensus and that, that Look magazine played a really strong role in cultivating that post-war consensus. So can you help us understand just briefly what that consensus was and explain how it was that this magazine played such a powerful role in establishing that in the United States? Sure, sure. Well, I mean, that consensus, which, you know, seems very far away in our politics today, was really that 
most Democrats and Republicans from uh, the end of World War II up till the end of the 60s, really, um, believed that, you know, the, the role of government, of public policy, of politicians in America was one to kind of advance the prosperity and rights of all Americans, to improve the well-being of all Americans. And, you know, if whatever kind of economic or social policies it took, whether that meant expanding Social Security, which was done under Republican as well as Democratic administrations, you know, Eisenhower and Nixon, as well as uh, Truman, Kennedy, and Johnson, or advancing civil rights. I mean, the first civil rights bill was in 1957 under Eisenhower when uh, Lyndon Johnson was majority leader to the uh, better known and more historic 64 Civil Rights and vote, 65 Voting Rights Acts under Lyndon Johnson, which you know won bipartisan support or the creation of programs like Medicare and Medicaid under Johnson. So, and housing policy, the GI Bill to, uh, again, things to advance all Americans' prosperity at home, but overseas to, to fight communism for Americans, America to stand tall as, as the beacon of freedom in the world and fighting communism for better or worse. I mean, of course, that got us in a lot of trouble in Vietnam and elsewhere. But there was broadly the, these parameters of policy that um, most Democrats and Republicans agreed on. And look, really helped foster this. Uh, Gardner Coles, Mike Coles, the publisher, was a liberal Republican, even though, you know, by today's standards, he would be considered, you know, a pretty liberal Democrat, to be honest. <laughs> but, you know, he supported civil rights. He supported a big, big internationalists. Um, you know, when uh, it's maybe hard to remember, or hard to think of today, that you know, the U.S. was not only the principal founder of the U.N., but a big supporter of the United Nations and multilateral institutions, which uh, Coles and uh, Look's uh, longtime top editor Dan Misch. Uh, supported, believed that America had a role in advancing freedom and prosperity throughout the world. So, you know, look, uh, did thoughtful coverage from from Africa to India, uh, you know, all over the world. And and a f kind of a final piece of that, um, which I talk about in my book, is that uh, a phrase that I really like that uh, Mike Coles used. He said. Look's philosophy is tough-minded optimism. And uh, as he uh, wrote, and I'll read just a sentence here, we believe that the problems confronting our civilization, peace, poverty, population, and pollution, just to name a few, can and will be solved, but only if more people understand what's really going on around them and why. And I think, you know, that's a great kind of description of, of what Locke tried to do and Locke's philosophy. It didn't, it didn't sugarcoat problems. It, it highlighted 
problems, but there was an optimism that they could be solved. And that was very much in keeping with uh, the beliefs of uh, political leaders of both parties during this uh, two and a half decade period from the end of World War II through the 1960s. Yeah, sure. So we're starting to run short on time, um, but I, I wanted to ask you briefly, I couldn't pass this up. In, in the opening pages of this book, you actually claim that this magazine may have had as big an impact on American culture in its era as Facebook has in the 21st century. Can that be true? Like, what, what is it that made it so impactful? Well, I mean, one thing was the sheer scope of its uh, circulation, of its reach. As I say, it, as well as life, reached about as many as 35 million Americans uh, with each issue. And this was at a time, I mean, in the 1950s, America had uh, about 175 million people. By the 1960s, 200, 220 million people. And of course, you know, today America is much, much larger. We're a country of 330 million people. No media have that kind of reach. I mean, you think of, you know, Fox News or CNN uh, reaching, you know, three, four million people at, at most. But, you know, in terms of, I mean, the comparison to Facebook and, and in some ways, you know, given Facebook's many problems, I uh, might pull back from that comparison <laughs> a little bit. Um, but I, I think the magazine, um, you know, it was something that was found on coffee tables of, of people of all social classes, you know, from from executives to, to um, you know, working people, uh, from, uh, you know, you'd find it, uh, it influenced policy in Washington, it, you know, um, you could find it in, in the proverbial barbershop or beauty shops of America. Um, so, you know, what I really meant by that comparison was that you know, it was something that a huge, huge swath of the American population read. It was kind of like a, a grand hearth that people, you know, gathered around in a way. And, you know, a, a phrase that, that I also mention in my book that uh, former President Obama used, he's talked about how we've lost the ability to have a, a common national conversation. Uh, which I think is very true today, but I think look helped look and life too helped facilitate that and the three networks simply by the fact that you know people of all sorts of different backgrounds and different political beliefs um, all read uh, look or life or you know watched Walter Cronkite and we don't have that today we don't have you know that that shared information, that shared stories, shared ideas, a medium like Look provided. Sure. Well, we we only have time for one last question, but I want to make sure we get it in because it's one that we ask all of our guests. So, Andrew, in your opinion, why does journalism history matter? Ah, well, 
Gosh, uh, that that's a great and huge question. <laughs> I mean, I, as a journalist, as somebody who's you know been a reporter for the New York Times, who's you know been uh, a, a freelance journalist, who's taught journalism, uh, I obviously believe that that uh, journalism and media and getting uh, information on the issues of um, and problems and successes uh, of our country and world are extremely important and getting, you know, multiple perspectives and multiple ideas, uh, you know, which is obviously a problem in, in much journalism today are extremely important. And that's why looking at, at media that did this successfully in the past or did this differently, uh, you know, whether it's a publication like Look or whether it's, uh, you know, Fortune in the 1950s or, you know, CBS News with Edward R. Murrow or Cronkite, even looking at how different different publications or different media uh, kind of successfully brought awareness of, of uh, problems and needs in the world uh, to the attention of, of the American people or, or people around the world in ways that, um, you know, led to better understanding of other people and, and in many cases to policy changes for the better. Uh, in society, I think, you know, it's it's very important, um, and you know, to see see the successes of media in the past as well as the failures, um, I think, can inform uh, better journalism, better uh, better information today. Absolutely. Well, Andrew, that's all the time that we have for this episode, but I, I want to thank you for being on the show. I really enjoyed our conversation. Oh, thanks, Ken. Th this was great. I appreciate it, too. Well, that's it for this episode. Again, the book is Look, How a Highly Influential Magazine Helped Define Mid-20th Century America. Thank you for tuning in, and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at jhistoryjournal. That's all one word. Until next time, I'm your host, Ken Ward, signing off with the words of Edward R. Murrow. Good night and good luck. 